Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The immigration bill negotiations revealed again where President Trump's head is at. I'll talk with Haitian Americans. There will be vulgar language. Catherine Deneuve signed a letter this week that warns of a new Puritanism and defended men's right to pester. I'll talk with Milo Stalik about the Me Too debate in France. And on Weekend Passport, Collaboration, a theater company that aims to do racial healing. Don't forget, you can join us on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. It was a weird scene at the White House this morning as Donald Trump signed a proclamation for Martin Luther King Day. Reporters shouted, are you a racist and will you apologize for saying shithole countries? The president rejected a compromise deal on immigration yesterday that would have helped the DACA dreamers get legal status. The president has decided not to extend temporary protected status to people from Nicaragua, El Salvador and Haiti. If there is no deal for TPS holders and dreamers, the U.S. would deport more than a million people of color while the president ponders how to get more people from places like Norway. With me is Monique Germain. She is president of the Midwest Association of Haitian American Women. She's also a member of the Illinois chapter of Haitian American Nurses. Thanks for joining me, Monique. Good day. Um, Where were you when you heard? What did you think when you heard about what Donald Trump was saying? I was, of course, watching television, and when I saw breaking news, and uh, this is what he said, and I just could not believe it, uh, to single out some groups, some populations, just because you probably have some personal bias. Um, it just doesn't make sense that a president of the United States would be talking this way. And he came out right and said in this meeting, why do we need more Haitians? Take them out. I I don't know what he means by that, but he needs to be taken out himself because Haitians have contributed to the betterment of the United States. Perhaps he needs to go back and read the history of Haiti as it relates to other countries and to the United States to see who we are. It is true. It's a poor country. But it didn't come by accident. And we are immigrants just like anybody else. And when we come here, we promote education. We work hard. 
We pay our taxes as much as uh, most of them who work here, and we do the best that we can do to help communities. So I, I don't understand it. Also with me on the line is Elsie Hector Hernandez. She's co-founder and president of the Haitian American Museum of Chicago. Elsie, where were you when you heard? What did, what did you think? I was at the museum at the time when one of the visitors came and told me about the news. And um, were you angry? Were you were you shocked? Um, no, I wasn't shocked because um, I'm kind of um, understand where President Trump is. So I'm not surprised of anything that comes out of his mouth like now. Um, it seems to me that he has an agenda and he's making it very clear to the American people where he stands as far as other nations, as far as immigrants, as far as um, other ethnic groups. So it's clear to me where he is. So I was shocked that he was able to use the language that he used, but I'm not shocked of his decision. So you you think he's a white supremacist and a racist, basically? Yes. And the same with you, Monique? Yes, he is definitely a racist who promotes institutional racism. And that's scary because he has a group of people out there who are helping him out, putting these, these kinds of policies to just make the United States look bad. And we are a country that loves all the immigrants who come here. And that's not the, the, who we are here in the United States. I wonder, uh, you know, how you, you heard, think about TPS status and the Haitian people who are going to uh, get kicked out of the country here. Um, how is that going down in the community? Uh, that that went down uh, last late last year, and um, there wasn't that much news about it. It is true. There wasn't that much news, especially in this community here. However, we have done our best as uh, different groups to, uh, first of all, inform ourselves, and second, to help us out. Uh, we have attorney Lynn Toussaint, who's come and talked to my group, my women's group, last uh, uh, August to talk about what TPS was and how it would impact Haiti and our communities. The problem is um, temporary status is temporary status, but that doesn't mean you don't do what you, you, you could do to help out these people if you look at the way the country is. Uh, it's not the first time people have gotten TPS, or we call it TPS, but a lot of people come here with some type of status that is not uh, a resident status. And then after a while, they become legal, and sometimes they become citizens. So what is the big deal, and how is it going to affect to say that, you know, we're from, excuse my language, shithole countries, and then we have, we got to take them out, take them out where and what does he want to do with it? Because he forgets that we're only a few hundred miles away from uh, the United States coast. Um, Elsie, I wonder if you could comment on um, what it means right now, because here we are, we're right on top of Martin Luther King Day. We're right on top of the anniversary of the Haitian earthquake. Um, this lands really strangely, doesn't it? Um, it, it's emotional, I must say. It, it saddens me that um, that United States of America, which is a land of opportunity of immigrants, and to kind of have this tone 
and to be Haitian myself and to be feeling so um, sad about all these um, hatred um, words and rejection um, because we only have provided positive, you know, for the most part, positive uh, outcome to this country. We have helped in every sense of the word. And we are a nation, and we are the first black nation of the world, and yet we are the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, but we are resilient. We are proud. We are individuals that have um, lived through, you know, natural disasters, even human disasters, etc., and we are still standing strong. So I really feel that Today is really such a really sad day for us because of the event of that occurred in 2010, January 12. We're still mourning the death, thousands, hundreds of uh, thousands of people dying. And then here we are, President um, Trump telling us, you know, go back and so on and so forth. So it's a sad day for me. Um, Monique, you are uh, a member of the Illinois chapter of Haitian American Nurses. Um, it sounds like... Donald Trump wants, you know, people from Norway to come to this country. Uh, do, are there any Norway nurses out there that are coming for your job? <laughs> there might be a few Norway nurses who are working here, but there are a lot of Haitian, Haitian-American nurses who work here, not only in the Chicago area, but up in New York, in Florida, in Boston, everywhere. We have chapters in every, just about most of the states. And we actually become an international organization. There are, uh, it's as many as we do have. So we don't have that many Norwegian nurses who come. There is a Norwegian hospital here, but we don't have that many that I know of that Norwegian nurses who are coming and take anybody's job or our job or whatever job it is. I don't know what the president is talking about. It must be about color, period. How do you make sense of what's going on in the U.S.? Because, uh, during the earthquake, there was such an outpouring of uh, sympathy for Haiti and people wanted to help and do so much. And then we have um, a president who is uh, a white supremacist, a, a racist, and uh, really doesn't like Haiti at all. Well, there is still an outpouring of people. Look at uh, yesterday, uh, Anderson Cooper. He had a wonderful uh, piece about Haiti, and he's still working there. There are a lot of organizations who are still helping, and that kind of um, it, it kind of blinds away what other people do. And when you have this supremacist group, and the problem is 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 the policies that that are going to be in place that's going to block what other people are doing, unfortunately. That's the policies. Forget about uh, Trump, but we must remember what will happen if indeed we keep him where he's at. Do you get the feeling like um, he's just flim-flamming the, the legislators in a way? He, he's talking with them, negotiating with them, but he doesn't seem to be really negotiating at all. No. First of all, he doesn't have the knowledge, nor the language, nor the background. That's a fact. Uh, he men, well, I shouldn't say mentally, but intellectually, he just cannot critically think and ask questions and say what will happen if he doesn't do that. He doesn't listen, or nor does he have the people, the right kind of people around him, 
uh, to tell him, to give him advice and to tell him what all presidents uh, who were there before him, they at least had people who could counsel and give information. This person refuses to listen to anyone, to any information, and everything is not fact. If you could tell him a few things, what, what would you tell the president? I'd say, Mr. President, get your facts together and then do the right thing. Um, do you have any advice, Halsey Hector Hernandez, uh, there in the phone? Um, I will say um, I think President Trump is really in and I'm don't take me wrong I I really feel sorry for him because I really think at this point he's he's dealing with the country with in fear and the fear that he has apparently is that uh, statistically it says in 2050 the minorities or the browns or different colors of individuals will make the majority so this is his fear. So he's basically reacting, not like Monique said, not on facts, not on reading, not studying, not analyzing, not listening to people, not lis- listening to his advisors. He's using his gut feeling of, of course, we already say he's racist, but mostly is because of fear and ignorance. So when somebody is is actually behaving in such a fearful manner, this is what will happen. He will actually come out without thinking before he speaks. His ideals will come out out of his gut. And in this kind of natural feelings that he has, based on fear, is what the public is hearing. So this is an individual to me that really needs help, in a sense, because he's running the country because he's afraid black people or Hispanic people or people of color will eventually take over, and he doesn't want that. So he wants Europeans, he wants other type of Caucasian to make up the gap that's going to happen. So we're talking in the future, but he's living it, though. Yeah. And so I don't think it's an immigration issue because his wife is an immigrant. His wife is talking with a big accent. He's, he's not from here. So obviously, it's not so much of an immigrant issue, but a fearful issue. Uh, my take on if, it. If it uh, you know, you run the Haitian American Museum of Chicago. Uh, do you think the be- president would benefit from a trip there? Oh, absolutely. He needs to come. <laughs> he needs to come. Actually, uh, if you could extend his invitation, I'll be more than happy to open my door for him. Um, Monique, you said that the president needs to learn a thing or two about Haiti. What would you like to tell him about Haiti's history? Well, first of all, he needs to read and get all the people who are around him who probably know. And and I'm sure he can find some. I don't mean his daughter, okay? And at least take a trip there and or send someone to see what there is and talk and, and see what's going on. Look at your embassy. There's a huge embassy in, the, in Haiti. It's not by mistake. Okay, so what what it is that we're contributing and where do we position ourselves in the Caribbean basin? He needs to understand it. Monique Germain is president of the Midwest Association of Haitian American Nurses. She's also a member of the Illinois chapter of uh, 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 um, 
the Midwest the Midwest Association of Haitian American uh, Women. But I also work with the Haiti Nursing Foundation, which is where I put a lot of energy to help the, the people in Haiti to promote health. And that's the, um, once again, the Haiti Nursing The Foundation. Haiti Nursing Foundation is a foundation created, it's um, located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's a gr- group of people who, and they're not Haitian at all, people who really wanted to help Haiti, along with the assistance of the Medical Benevolence, which is an international organization. And Ruth Barnard uh, was the one who really, uh, she's a nurse also, but she's American. She's from the University of Michigan. And she tried to work out and start a nursing school in Haiti, which was the first nursing school with a baccalaureate program. And it's 10 years old going strong. And we graduate a lot of nurses who make a difference in the country. Well, that's terrific to hear. I'm glad that's it's right. going on. Uh, Monique Germain, uh, president of the Midwest Association of Haitian American Women, member of the Illinois Chapter of Haitian Nurses. And if people can want to look for more information about that, they can see it where? Of course. I, they can call me anytime. Here's my number, 312-259-8457. I, I can answer the phone. Thanks a lot for joining us. And also thanks on the line, Elsie Hector Hernandez, co-founder and president of the Haitian American Museum of Chicago. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalek. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. We're reaching Milos remotely today. He is at the Palm Springs Film Festival, enjoying the weather. How are you, Milos? I'm doing great, Jerome. We wanted to chat a bit about Catherine Deneuve this week, the iconic film star from France. Uh, she and a hundred other French women ended up wading into the Me Too situation and they wrote a letter that was published in Le Monde that talked about how the Me Too situation in France has gone too far, saying that clumsy flirting's not a crime. The Weinstein thing was one thing, but all this other stuff has gone too far. What did you make of the Catherine Deneuve uh, letter? Well, I think it speaks a lot about French culture and how uh, uh, sex and romance are kind of at the center of French society. Uh, because, you know, l'amour, 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 the French can speak. You can see this in films, uh, how much the French in real life or on the screen spend time just endlessly dissecting every single romantic element from ad infinitum. They're right about this. That This goes back to the troubadours and this whole uh, idea of courtly love. You know, on the other hand, this letter really stirred up different segments of French society because there are certainly massive other points of view, like France now has a minister of gender equality who really revolted against this because in studies that they've begun to do is the French are completely unaware of what sexual harassment is or means. And probably Catherine Deneuve, who knows how she navigated this through her own love life, uh, what she knows about it. 
So there are studies in, they say that like uh, three quarters of French people were unable to differentiate between seduction and harassment. Yes, I mean, and then they, they can't really define uh, when someone on a subway, on a metro, uh, rubs up uh, against you in a provocative way that uh, what that means and, and uh, how it is. You know, the cat calls are kind of written off. It's admiration of the street, I think, is the phrase that they use uh, in this. So this is a, coming from a very, very, very different place. And the way, of course, that they define this also is, is that this is an Anglo-Saxon imposition upon the French definition of love, sex, and romance. And, of course, the Anglo-Saxons, as we all know, are Puritans, moralists. It goes back, and it's an interesting piece today that was written in the New York Times about how this goes back to Simone de Beauvoir and her you know, seminal book of feminism, The Second Sex, in which she talked about how in America you have a much greater division between men and women in, in their relationship versus the French embrace love from both the feminine and masculine perspective. Milos, I think a lot of people in this country would just rack this up to Catherine Deneuve is from the generation of sexual liberation, and they think that this new generation is a bunch of victims, and they do not see their own agency in the same way that her generation does. Should we look at that this way? Yes, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, this is also very very much a generational thing. Uh, You know, none of these things really ultimately go far enough, however, whether this is in the Me Too movement in America or in France, it's really addressing the central issues which have to do with power. I mean, harassment is very much tied to power structures. And the power structures, which certainly in the entertainment business, which, which has been most visible in this, belong to men. I mean, you can look at the statistics. Of, of course, many more women are involved in, as filmmakers in France than there than are in the United States. But still, you have a huge division between who gets to make a film and under what conditions and what that what being in power and trading on that currency of power in terms of sexual favors, how that gets represented. You know, there was a legalistic thing that was going on in France, too. I noticed that um, there was discussion of a legislative proposal that would fine men for aggressive catcalling or lecherous behavior towards women in public. The France's junior minister for gender equality said that France's parliament would also debate whether to establish a clear age below which a minor cannot consent to sexual relationships. Um, And that decision came after French prosecutors declined to charge a 28-year-old man with rape after he had sex with a 11-year-old girl. They are trying to legally have some kind of implications here. Well, I think it's opened up in a good way. It's opened up this discussion inside France because, you know, this whole question of male privilege has certainly exists in France just as it does here, just in a very different way. And then this whole pattern of, oh, we are all about love. Uh, you know, we don't want to give up on the French kiss. This is <laughs> this is very, very this part of our culture in a way hides and deflects the uh, attention from what really goes on underneath, because still, of of course, there's harassment and this abuse of power in France, just as there is here. Lastly, maybe the social politics of Catherine Deneuve. I mean, she has in the past defended Roman Polanski about accusations that he had sex with a 13-year-old girl and 
you know, said, you know, that's been dealt with and we should move on and things like that. How do we digest where she's at? Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know her mind. <laughs> she's not the most open person in the universe. I mean, what Catherine Deneuve uh, says and does or has done in the past is often quite calculated. She's very pretty closed off. She's not... Um, your homey, warm, friendly, open, uh, outspoken person in opposition to somebody like Isabel Huppert, for example, who, who I think is much more open that way. Catherine Deneuve is much more guarded in, in personal ways. So it's very difficult to see through the wall that she puts up around herself. You know, in terms of Polanski, I mean, this whole episode in France, in a way, began this time with Polanski because there was, I think, an uh, exhibition of screenings of Polanski films, a tribute that he was being paid to him, and women showed up to protest because there have been since new accusations uh, against Polanski. And then this whole attitude, which kind of exists in France, which I think is reflective of what Deneuve said, in which you could read, say, well, we've always known things are that way and everybody knew it, but so what? You know, so he likes uh, uh, young girls and it's in the past and, you know, let's go on. He's still a good filmmaker. Uh, that's It's pretty cheap cop out. Well, Milos, let's turn to the world of film. And by the way, you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with film contributor Milos Stalik. He's in Palm Springs right now going to the Palm Springs Film Festival and uh, there's a film opening up here and most places around the country right now, Phantom Thread by Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, and Daniel Day-Lewis, the star. I can't find a review that says a bad word about it. Everyone seems to love it. It's at the music box in 70 millimeter. Um, what do you think? I think it's really a, a small gem, you know. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson has always been an interesting filmmaker, and this film, which is kind of an odd theme in a way you could say, I mean, he wrote it himself, it's his own story, it's set in London, it's set after the war, and its central character, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, is a dressmaker, a couturier, I mean, who makes dresses for very wealthy women, you know, who can afford to have a dress made from scratch for them that they're only going to wear in society once. And then the way that he relates to women who who become his models and muses, in one way it's a study of relationships, it's a study of character in terms of the character that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays, and it's a study of artistic creation. And so it works on multiple levels, it's a period piece, and it's immaculately made. Um, Milos, and I have not seen Phantom Thread, but, you know, I've read a couple of the interviews with Paul Thomas Anderson, and I saw The Master, and I felt like that film was about uh, kind of a cult leader, and there was a little bit of a contrived obsession about it. And I, I see a kind of contrived obsession here. It seems uh, a little far removed from human behavior that is, uh, you know, recognizable. I mean, first of all, I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is always interested in these kind of power relationships and the kind of weirdness, psychological weirdness, which exists within particularly men of power. So the difference here is, is that this character, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, is a slightly different kind of uh, power figure because he's in creator. He's uh, an artist because obviously everything that he does is artistry. 
He lives and works out of his uh, house at Atelier in, in London. The business is run by his sister, Cyril. He's kind of a neurasthenic in the sense that everything disturbs him. And it's the way that he uses beautiful women in these creations. And also, you kind of get into the interior of his background and his mind. Because obviously his mom, and this film kind of begins with his dreaming of his mom who's passed away. So you can really see that there's something very dark and disturbing underneath all of this stuff. And he's an artist who really can't give up and separate himself from his work and open up to human relationships. Okay, you're making my case for me, though, Milos. I think it is contrived obsession. Um, well, why, why is that contrived? <laughs> no, it just seems completely unrealistic that you know you can't get close to another person because your artistic obsession is so enormous and and powerful. I don't know. No, no, no. But he's no, no. I don't mean that he's because he's powerful, but because he's a really arch neurotic, you know, because he's disturbed. Because I mean, there's a great scene. One of those great scenes in the film is is that. In the morning, they have this silent breakfast in the house, you know, and this uh, young woman whom he brings to be his new model and muse whom he finds in the country is buttering her toast too loud. (laughs) And this becomes an immense disturbance to him. So it kind of makes you think of Proust. You're making my case again for me. You're making my case. (laughs) Um, Well, what? That, that this is kind of like a contrived obsession thing that, you know. Well, but I, I mean, don't you think that obsession in itself is contrived? Well, that's and, true. You know, and, and we've all known some obsessive people, and they're, they're, they are pretty contrived. <laughs> yeah, I haven't known anyone who does that with their toast, though. It seems kind of hokey. Well, yeah, but I mean, you can read about uh, Marcel Proust, you know, and how nuts he was about any noise. I mean, just disturbing him and, and sending him out into, uh, you know, in, immense headaches and unable to deal with anything. So certainly those kinds of things are possible. And this gets darker and weirder in the film. I don't want to give it away, but what the relationship becomes. But it gets darker and weirder of what it takes for Alma, this young woman that he brings in, to try to open him up to feeling. Uh, now, to get away from that and move on to the key element here, is this Daniel Day-Lewis's last film, Milos? What do you think? Well, he said it is. I mean, uh, I believe him. I mean, uh, he doesn't make many films. I mean, I think he's a very serious actor. You know, he obviously certainly invests himself in his films a great deal. To me, Daniel Day-Lewis is really the best when he's very physical and even though this is not a physical film, he kind of carries the physicality into the presence that he has in the film. And it's really a performance which nails everything absolutely impeccably down to the last minute detail. Film contributor Milos Dela coming to us from the Palm Springs Film Fest. Nice talking with you again, Milos. Great to be here, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we will take you to Hawaii. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. My global citizen friend Nari Safavi is off globetrotting himself right now, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I will forge on without him. Our first stop on the international tour is at the theater, and we are going to talk with Collaboraction, a theater company that has a winter festival that is uh, themed on racial healing, and I am delighted to have Anthony Mosley here with me, the artistic director of Collaboraction um, and the curator of the Encounter Festival that's going on. Thanks for joining us. What a prescient festival. I hope the president comes and gets a front row seat. We got one waiting for him. (laughs) And everybody else. Now, you dedicated your whole season to racial healing here. How did this happen? Five years ago, uh, we created a a play called Crime Scene, a Chicago anthology about the root cause of violence. 125 performances for 20,000 people with four sequels to the original, touring the whole city, made it abundantly clear that our systemic racism is the root cause of our violence in the city and so many other inequities. And it's just the fabric of the city. It's Chicago as we know it, um, segregated um, with really uh, uh, an international tourist destination on one side and a slow-dripping genocide on the other side of town. So we dedicated our whole season to racial healing. We're coming up on the 50-year anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And um, we decided to kind of give our community a deep dive into many different perspectives of the many realities of racism. And um, and we're just delighted to be offering this right now. Now, this Winter Festival Encounter has a bunch of offerings, and it goes until January 20th there at uh, your studios there in the Flatiron Building. And um, explain how many people are involved in this. There's about 150 Chicago artists. Um, There's three collections, History, Identity, and Resistance. They each have six pieces of either theater, dance, film, spoken word, and every show is followed by a moderated discussion. Um, Then we have two fantastic one-woman plays, uh, Ada Chang's Not Quite, Asian American by Law, Asian Woman by Desire, and Sonia Jackson's Reaction Time. And then we also have some readings and some great one-night events next week. Well, that just sounds uh, fantastic. That's like a fantastic thing that you're doing for the city. And we haven't quite announced it yet, but after the 20th, we'll be touring to Theater on the Lake, the new venue, on February 3rd, and then touring the parks on every Saturday in February. And those shows are all free. We'll be in Englewood, Austin, and Hermosa after Theater on the Lake. Ah, so you're taking it to the streets. We're taking it to the people. You know, um, accessibility doesn't just mean a free ticket. You got to actually make it accessible. So we're so lucky to be partnering with the Chicago Park District for our sixth year now. Anthony Mosley is Artistic Director of Collaboration and Curator of the Encounter Festival, which is running through the 20th before it goes to the people in various communities. And uh, Ada Chang is here. She is the writer and performer of Not Quite, Asian American by Law, Asian Woman by Desire. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Ada. Thank you for having me. Um, Tell me about your work. Um, How did this happen? Um, I was a professor for 15 years, and I finally decided to do something different and (laughs) and use creative medium to convey messages and storytelling becomes part of what I do. You left academia Yes, I did. 
And what I wanted to do is really to use uh, storytelling and performance art uh, to offer social critique. Um, and so even though I'm sharing my personal story, what I really want to highlight is the structure and the social conditioning um, that shapes our experiences differently and, and similarly. So use, instead of writing, doing research, I'm using storytelling and performance art as a way to offer um, you know, the structural analysis, sociological analysis of the our social or current affairs. And this is what other artists are doing as well. So I'm very honored to be part of the Encounter series. So tell us about the piece, uh, Not Quite Asian American by Law, Asian a Woman by Desire. And there are three stories in this particular solo show. But the first uh, segment is really about, I use my experience going through the citizenship ceremony to drive a major point that is uh, that we talk so much about the process of legalization and naturalization. But what I want to make a distinction is that being legalized or naturalized is very different from being assimilated assimilated or feeling part of this country or feeling a sense of uh, belonging. And, and we see that out. These are two very different things. Having that piece of paper doesn't guarantee that you have equal rights or you are going to be seen as similar to uh, people. So, so, And we see that now, right? And so that's the point that I want to say is that being legalization is a very small part of this whole process, but becoming part of this country but, and feeling at home and having sense of belonging, that's something that all immigrants are striving for. And that's just the first section. That's just the first <laughs> section. And so what I did is the first session is about structure. The second part is how structure uh, manifests themselves through interpersonal relationships. And so I use a teaching moment as a way to talk about how we um, reproduce uh, you know, racial inequality, gender inequality through our interpersonal dynamics. And the last segment of my story is about my own encounter with the Nazi salute. And I told it within the context of LGBTQ context. And what I want to use that segment is to show that we all have a stake in all this. That Nazi salute, as much as it's affiliated with a Holocaust, it also has implications for different groups of people. And we all have a stake in making sure that this country is safe for everybody. I'm talking with Ada Cheng. She's the writer and performer between behind Not Quite Asian, uh, Not Quite Asian American by Law, Asian Woman by Desire. It's tonight at 7.30 and Sunday at 4. Uh, Saturday uh, at 4. Tomorrow Saturday. Saturday tomorrow at 4. Okay. And at, that's at Collabor Action as part of the Encounter Festival. And you were going to do a little bit of the piece for us? Yes. Yes. Do you want me to go ahead? Yeah. Which yes. section is it? Uh, it's when I talk about, I invited my chair, uh, department chair at, at the university where I was a full-time faculty member to join me for the ceremony. And, and I'll, I'm going to start. Okay. In the first documentary, the narrator talked about how we, like the previous generations of immigrants, that we were fortunate to escape war, poverty, and political and religious repressions to come to this country to pursue our American dream. I suddenly felt terrible that I invited my department chair to the ceremony with me. You see, my department chair was a 70-year-old African-American man. His ancestors didn't come to this country voluntarily. In his parents' time, people of different races were not allowed to swim in the same swimming pool. And what was happening in May 2015, 
Activists like Black Lives Matter have been protesting against police brutality for quite some time. Baltimore was particularly under scrutiny because of death of Freddie Gray. War is not outside of the United States. War is right here in the United States, in our own backyard, against our own people. What was my celebration was not necessarily his to have, even though he was very happy for me, but it was also very difficult for him to sit there and to listen to the rhetoric about American exceptionalism as a black man. Our stories were connected, yet very different under the same racial structure. Ada Chang from her uh, performance of Not Quite Asian American by Law, Asian Woman by Desire. It's tonight and Saturday at 4 at the Collaboration, part of the Encounter Festival. Um, that's terrific. I'm, Thank you. I am sure that uh, lots of people are going to want to check this out. Um, the, how many other offerings are coming down the pike just this weekend, Anthony? Um, you know, Saturday we have two theaters running shows all day. From There's a 3 o'clock, Ada's at 4 o'clock, we have Sonia Jackson at 7.30, and we have our resistance program at 7, which has got a lot of great dance. And, you know, the, the, it, it, and <laughs> there's good. film, and, the, yeah, the dance is amazing. And, and I just want to say, you know, this is a really wonderful place for white Chicagoans and people of power and privilege and influence to come and expand their perspective and to see themselves as a a, a part of the solution. And we all need to look at how we can live better together. And when we start doing that, guess what? We're going to have the crime rate will go down. We'll like our elected officials be more proud of them. Um, but it has to start with the citizenry. And I believe that Chicago storytellers like Ada and our comics and our filmmakers and our creatives are our greatest natural asset to get more people to become part of the solution and, and, and start to heal the city. Well, that sounds terrific. And um, uh, I, you know, Ada, do you, do you regret giving up the academic work? Uh, let me say this. This is the one of the best decisions I have ever made for my life, my career. Never regret it. Um, and, and I have to say something. is What I cherish the most is to see the different group experiences stayed out uh, through the festival. But also is the conversation, the talk back afterwards. And in each performance, I always have very different reactions and different conversations. And that's the most important part is how do we as people have productive and constructive conversations? And that's the thing that we want to strive for is how do we talk to each other um, thoughtful and, and engagement? And that's what we need. Writer and performer Ada Chang, you can see her uh, tonight at 7.30 and Saturday at 4 at Collaboraction, part of the Encounter Festival. And Anthony Mosley is the Artistic Director of Collaboraction. And we can uh, get more information about the festival at where? Where's the website? Collaboraction.org. Collaboraction.org. And also we're accepting submissions for our Peace Book Festival, which tours the city in the summer. We did 24 pieces of seven minutes or less. So... Telling your truth matters. Ada Chang's truth. There's lots of truth. If you want to submit your truth and be part of Peacebook next year, go to collaboration.org and find it there as well. 
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Our next event on Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time, is from Hawaii. And there is an event taking place at the Old Town School of Folk Music on Sunday at 7 p.m., where you can hear indigenous Hawaiian music from Kamakaiva Kanakaole. And this is a sample. That's music from Hawaii, and you can hear it on Sunday at 7 p.m. at the Old Town School of Folk Music. And on the line with us now, we have Kamaka Eva Kanaka-Ole, and thank you very much for joining us. Chicago and NPR. Mahalo for having me. Aloha. <laughs> um, tell us a little about yourself and um, how, I, I, you know, I've been to Hawaii and I thought, wow, this is a tough place, I mean, for indigenous Hawaiians. It is not a place uh, that it, it is probably easy to explore indigenous Hawaiian identity. Um, we've managed. We've managed. And um, Hawaii is um, Hawaii is an interesting dichotomy considering the... Um, considering the socio-political um, endeavors that we've had to and um, tribulations that we've, ha- we've had to face as a people and as a collective culture through the last 100 and nearly 27 years. Uh, how did you find out more about uh, indigenous music and, and what did you want to... How did you learn about it? Well, I was raised... Um, I was... I was born and raised in a family um, of practitioners, particularly uh, ritual hula or um, ritual uh, indigenous Hawaiian dance and uh, chant. So it was that ritual, um, it was the upbringing amongst the uh, ritual forms that bore my introduction into, um, into the music uh, into the music aspect of the culture. Uh, how does uh, ritual hula did differ. differ from what people <laughs> think of when they see it at a hotel beach in Hawaii? Whatever you think you see at a hotel, plus a, plus a colored drink and an orchi- a purple orchid, think the ex- exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's a contrived, um, what, they, what, what people has, um, have come to experience of Hawaii is a contrived and diluted version of um, the of the tribulation and trial of the Native Hawaiian, um, as as relevant as we um, as we are, as a, as opposed to a past tense. Well, tell us something about Hawaiian chant and what is it, and how is it different than uh, other other chanting indigenous uh, forms. Well, the the um and. I'm sure my fellow artisans and um, uh, indigenous and Aboriginal practitioners of the arts can agree with me when I say that um, the the more we we regress and uh, and return to a more primal to more primal sounds and beats, um, the more similar we become. So the um, the dif- the difference 
is less um, is less noticeable when um, dealing with um, Hawaiian chant. Native Hawaiian chant, um, like so many other indigenous and Aboriginal forms of, um, and even uh, uh, religious forms of music, such as Carnatic music, Vedic music, um, uh, uh, the Hebrew, um, the uh, Hebrew cantor um, tradition, etc., and um, music born of spiritual of spirituality. For a people, it um, operates in that esoteric space. Yes, indeed. Now, how, how do you explain your music? It it sounds um, extremely modern uh, and and has kind of modern beats to it. How do you work work that um, work it all together? Well, how I work it together, um, I think my existence um, as a twenty first century Native Hawaiian. Uh, <laughs> Works it all together yeah, for you. Yes. I, it's my experience. Why? Um, it's the the sound of. It is the relevant and um, very honest sound of the 21st century Native Hawaiian practitioner um, living the 21st century Native um, Native Hawaiian life in an otherwise colonized. Um, homeland so that that what you hear on the record is that juxtaposition and that um not contradiction but juxtaposition and so um right in terms of and in terms of art um it isn't as linear as um we'd like to consider chronologically we the the success of my my family the uh, kanaka ole um clan the success of our family's practitionership as Native Hawaiians hasn't um, has been in our ability to maintain longevity. Kaumakaiba Nikanakaole is at the Old Town School of Folk Music Sunday, January 14th at 7 p.m. Thanks a lot for joining us and sharing your phenomenal-sounding music. We'll go out with a little more of it. And Monday on Worldview, we'll have a special Worldview for Martin Luther King Day. Hope you can join us. Don't forget, we're going on the road. We'll be doing a live taping at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs next Thursday on artificial intelligence. More information is at wbez.org slash events. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.